today we are going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. And while you're finding that, I want to ask you a question. When someone says the word great, what comes to mind? If someone says they are the greatest, or this is the greatest thing that has ever happened, or I want to be the greatest in my field, or the greatest at this thing or that thing, if someone asks you to define what it means to be the greatest, think about what you would say. Right, we would say something like, it's someone important, someone of great significance, someone that we ascribe a lot of value to. And for all of us, I think at some point in our lives, we would say we have wanted to be the greatest at one thing or another. If we're honest about that, we've all said we wanted to be the best at one thing or another. Some of us freely admit that. Some of us are brash about it. Some of us kind of pretend like we're humble about it, but we really want to be the greatest. Uh, do we have any Oakland A's fans in the house this morning? I know we'd have a couple. First of all, I'd like to say I'm sorry. I don't know what happened that you guys became A's fans. Um, but it's okay. It's okay. You'll survive. In 20 years, you guys will be good again. Um, but speaking of brashness and being the greatest, if you have been an A's fan for more than a few years, you know who Ricky Henderson is, right? All the A's fans, you guys know who Ricky Henderson is. He broke the stolen base record on his 939th stolen base. Now, Ricky Henderson was very brash about being the greatest of all time. After he steals the base, the umpire calls him safe. He picks the base up out of the ground, holds it up in the air, and starts celebrating. So he has a speech afterwards. And he begins to talk about all that he's gone through to get to this point, how hard he's worked. And then at the end, he says, but today, I am the greatest of all time. So he knew, in his mind, he knew he wanted to be the greatest, right? He talked about that. So we think about what it takes for us to be the greatest. If there has been a point in each of our lives where we have felt the want to be significant, to be thought of as having value, I think that has come at everybody's life at some point or another. What does the Bible have to say about that? What does the Bible have to say about being the greatest or having greatness? And the Bible does talk about this, and that's what we're going to look at today. So in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41, if you don't have a Bible, just follow along on the screen. They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. 
Last week when Pastor Matt preached, one of the stories in there was of a boy who was demon-possessed. And the disciples could not cast out the demon. No matter what happened, they couldn't do it. They had to get Jesus to come and do it himself. So you would think that a situation like that would have humbled these guys to begin with. But clearly it has. And I feel like one of the, the common themes we see through Mark is that the disciples are, are not the brightest bunch. And they're not very good at following what Jesus has told them to do. And so we see this again. This is Jesus' second prediction. Let's look in verses 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the second time that Jesus has predicted his own death. The first time was in chapter 8. And there is a slight difference in these two predictions. Not, not about the, his death and not about the three days. But in chapter 8, when Jesus talks about predicting his death, he lays the responsibility at the feet of the Jewish leaders. As though they're going to be the ones who reject him and they're going to be responsible for that. But if we look in here, in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be, be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. What we see here now is that the responsibility for Jesus' death falls on all humanity. Not just a couple of people, but on humanity in general. We are all responsible for the death of Jesus because of our sin, every single one of us. And another thing that's fascinating within this little chunk of text right here, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Up until this point, there have been people who have wanted to kill Jesus. And it's not just by accident that Jesus has been able to get away or not be killed by these people. This is all part of God's sovereignty. There is a time scheduled in history where God was going to deliver Jesus to people to be killed. And that's where this time is coming. We're getting closer to that time. And this is God's sovereignty. And Jesus is predicting this. And in his humility... He doesn't change anything, right? Like he knows, he knows he's going to his death. He knows that that time is coming soon. He is willingly walking forward to his own death. Now, I don't know, don't raise your hand on this, but think about how many of us would willingly walk to our own death, right? I, I think if, if I knew that my death was going to be peaceful, right, sure. I, you know, if I'm going to pass away in my sleep, sure, I'll, I'll gladly walk to that. That doesn't seem that big of a challenge for me. The difference here is with Jesus, he knew that his death was going to be violent. He knew that he was going to suffer and that it was going to be painful. This is the second time that he predicts his death. And out of his great love for us, he stays the course. He doesn't try and get out of it. He doesn't change anything. He's not under this false hope, you know, maybe things aren't going to end badly for me. Maybe everything's going to be okay and I won't really have to die. He knows this is coming. His whole life he's known this is coming. And his love for us keeps him going in that direction. It keeps him going. How dare we have this idea that, you know, I'm not sure that Jesus loves me. What's so fascinating about everything that Jesus does is just, is upside down compared to how we would do it. Right, so now we, we've seen that the death of Jesus falls at the hands of all humanity. 
But what's fascinating about Jesus is, guess who gets the opportunity to benefit from Jesus' death? All of humanity. How does that work? Right? Like, in my mind, if I know somebody's going to kill me, the last thing I want to do is make sure they're taken care of or give them an opportunity at redemption. But Jesus, because of who he is, he knows that these people are going to kill him, that humanity is responsible, and he knows that his death is the only way that humanity can be redeemed in any way, shape, or form. That's why he stays, of course, because of his love for us, because he knows there's no other way for us. He continues to go in that direction. And so we were talking earlier about the disciples and kind of just their not always doing the right thing. Let's see how the disciples respond, right? They've, they've gone through this moment. Jesus is predicting his death, that he's going to be killed. He doesn't just say that I'm going to die. He says they're going to kill me. How do the disciples respond? Let's look in verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? It's funny that he asked them right as though Jesus didn't know what they were arguing about. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Their response to Jesus talking about his death was to have a discussion about which one of them is the best. Which one of us is the greatest? That's the conversation they're having. The man who they put their life on the line to follow, their conversation is about which one of us is the best. The reason why, and, and Matt has spoken about this the past couple of weeks, the Jewish people viewed the Messiah as like this militaristic champion. That when the Messiah came, he was going to defeat all the other nations and he's going to put Israel at the top and that's how the rest of life was going to be. So in their mind, if they're the greatest of Jesus' group of 12, then that's a pretty high spot. If Jesus takes over as king and they're the right-hand man, a lot comes with that. Power comes with that. Privilege comes with that. Everybody's going to know who you are. People will think that you are one of the greatest people on earth if you're with Jesus. So they begin to argue about this, and we see there's such a stark contrast because Jesus has just talked about his death. In his humility, in his compassion, he is staying the course. But what the disciples are arguing about is which one of us is going to be more famous? Which one of us is going to have more power? Which one of us is going to be considered great? Which one of us is going to have the ability to basically kind of run the show? And that's what they're working on. That's what they're going towards. They're not looking to follow Jesus. Jesus is looking at laying down his life. And these guys are looking at fulfilling their life's dreams of being in charge. There's such a, a stark difference between the way that Jesus does things and the way that we do things. The disciples are basically jockeying for position, right? Because let's say if Jesus is the Messiah and he overthrows all these people, then he's king, but then he's going to die like he says then that means whoever's greatest among the 12 might slide up to be the top person. So it's all for them. It's not about how can I be more like Jesus. The disciples, in, in their ignorance up to this point, are more concerned about themselves, more concerned about their fame, more concerned about their name. Right? They want to attach themselves to Jesus, but only as much as it brings them power and brings them fame. Those types of things still happen today. I know you guys are, are aware of that. 
But I love Jesus' response. He does not tell them, how dare you strive for greatness. He doesn't say, no, you need to, you need to think that you're a terrible person, that you're never going to amount to anything, that you're just, you're just lucky that I'm here. He never approaches them in that way. What he does, though, and what's so fascinating about the way Jesus, again, flips everything upside down is he redefines what greatness is. He redefines what greatness is for these guys. I love it. He says, if you want to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. Because it's wonderful, right? It's like Jesus pulls them in and says, listen, you, got, you want to be the greatest? Guess what? I've got a surefire way for that to happen. If you follow this, what I'm about to say next, I guarantee you're going to be the greatest. Serve everybody. Be last. So if we're supposed to be last, who does that mean is in front of us? Everyone. Everyone else is in front of us. If we're called to serve, then everyone else is in front of us. If we're called to be last, like Jesus says, everyone else is in front of us. This is what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is God come down in human form. There is nothing greater than that. And yet he is literally putting all of humanity ahead of himself in service. So if you want to achieve greatness, you know, we, we sometimes think only certain people are destined for greatness, right? Like you have to have, you know, certain attributes, you have to look a certain way. But what Jesus is saying is that in God's economy, everybody has the chance to have greatness. Everybody has the chance to be great. All that it takes is service for other people. Like that's it. Right, there's not, you don't have to like go and like preach on a mountaintop. You know, this past week, Billy Graham just passed away. And the amount of people that, whose lives he influenced, we can't even begin to count. Jesus isn't asking us to be that person. He's asking us to be who we are and to serve the very least. And what he does next is he takes a child. He takes a child And he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Jesus is not saying you need to become like a child. This is not the text where it says, if you have faith like a child, everything's going to be fine. In the first century, children had no value. They had no rights. Nobody cared what they thought. Nobody asked, what school do you want to go to? What sports do you want to play? Basically, children were treated as, listen, stay out of the way until you get old enough to where you can do something good around the house. Until you can start working and providing something for us, you basically stay out of the way. So children were considered needy and lowly, and that's why Jesus pulls them in there. Because if, if you've been a parent, you can understand this easily. If you've not been a parent, you still know what, knows what babies look like, right? They're little, they can't really do much. Everybody's good with that? When you're a parent, or even when you're watching a child, what can that child repay you with, right? Like, I'm, you know, as a, as a father, when our kids were born, I'm looking at my kid. They're small. They're using the bathroom everywhere. They're crying all the time. There's literally nothing that my child could do to repay me for us providing clothes, diapers, food, baths, all those things. There's nothing that that child, that my child could have ever done to repay us. It's still like that, right? Like, and that's, that's not just when they're infants, that's, right? Like, as they get older, it's still just, there's still just a lot of stuff. You're like, man, I don't think I'm ever going to get back the money I'm putting into this. Um, and, that's, and that's okay. That's what Jesus is saying with this, with this child, is our service, the kind of service that Jesus calls great, 
is service to people who can't pay you back. Right? A lot of our relationships become utilitarian. And by that I mean, you know what? I'm going to do something kind for this person because I, I know they have season tickets to the Warriors. And if I do something nice, then there's a chance I may be able to get to go to a game. Right? That's a lot of the way our relationships work. I'm going to do something for this person, but I know in the back of my mind I'm going to get some kind of payback for that. Right? That's why it's easier for us to do those things than it is for, for us to do things like work with kids. Right? Because I'm, listen, w- working with kids in the kids' ministry is wonderful. But when the kids leave, they're not stopping saying, oh, thank you so much for teaching me today. You know, my life is going to be forever changed. You're lucky if they say bye. Right? Like they just take off. Where are the cookies? Where are the snacks? I need something to drink. What Jesus is saying is that in order for this type of greatness in God's economy, we have to serve those who have nothing to offer us. That is the best way for that to happen. Now, if we think about this, why don't we do that? Right? It's, it's difficult for us because we want something in return. We want to be able to, re- to be repaid with something. We want people to appreciate our efforts, right? Like, I'm going to go serve this person, but I want everybody else in America to know that I'm doing this, that I'm going out of my way to make this happen. So we want some kind of reward for that. But that's not the way that Jesus approaches this. So when we talk about wanting to be great, and then if we take on Jesus' definition I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, it's like, well, you know what? I'm okay with being pretty good, right? I don't really need to be great. I don't need to be the greatest. I don't need to achieve that. And in God's economy, if if I'm just considered a pretty decent person, I'm okay with that. I want to serve just enough to where people will get off my back. Like, that's the way that a lot of us approach that. Not, you know, what, what can I do? What can I do for people? What can I do for children? What can I do for those in our church? They can do nothing for me in return. We're, we, don't, we don't look through that lens because we don't think about it in that way. And one of the reasons we don't think about it in that way is because if we get down to it and we search our hearts, we don't think Jesus is enough. We don't think Jesus is enough. If Jesus is enough, if Jesus is everything, if he's given me, if, he's, if he makes me feel like I belong, like I've been accepted, like I'm loved for who I am and I am known for who I am. If I see that in Jesus, do you know what? I don't need these other things to give me value. I don't need to strive for greatness in everything. I'm not saying don't work hard at what you do. I'm saying if, we're, if we put this thing on a pedestal, right, if I'm the greatest at work, if I'm the greatest at sports, if I'm, if I'm the greatest in my family, if I do the most stuff at church, we look at those things and we depend on those things to give us value. When we do that, it's because we don't believe that Jesus has ascribed value to us. And we look back earlier, Jesus knew that his death was coming. And what did he do? He kept going. He kept going because in Jesus' eyes, you have ultimate value. Your life is worth Jesus going through painful death on the cross because of his love for you. You are worth that to him. When we see that, when we see the way that he loves us so deeply and what he went through to be able to redeem us, if we truly look at the cross in that way, then you know what? I, d- I don't need these other things so much. I've got Jesus. So now that I have Jesus, now that I'm covered, now that I'm secure, what can I do for other people? Because when we think about humility, 
Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, right? Like Jesus didn't say you should think that you're worse than you really are. Humility is thinking less, thinking of yourself less, where your first thought is not about what you can get out of this situation. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. Not what can you get, but who can you serve without getting repaid? Without getting repaid in any of this. <coughs> and we look again, how do the disciples respond to this? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a common theme throughout Mark. The disciples very rarely respond in, in the way that they should. But let's look in verses 38 through 41. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So Jesus has predicted his death. He's then talked about humility, about to be great, you need to serve others. And John's response is, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Like first, the ignorance and the arrogance of the disciples is on full display here. Because we just talked about, if you were here last week, Matt talked about that. There was a, a boy who was demon-possessed. The disciples couldn't do anything about it. And now all of a sudden, they're the experts. Now all of a sudden, and he doesn't even say, because he was not following you. He said, because he was not one of us. Which meaning now, the disciples' attitude is, we deserve to be followed. We're, we're as much a part of this thing as Jesus is. It's not as important they follow Jesus, but they're not one of us. They're not, they're not part of who we are. He wasn't following us. And we get this mindset, right? The disciples are thinking, you know what? If we can kind of corner the market on this whole exorcism thing, then all of a sudden we're going to be revered. We're going to be important. We're going to achieve greatness. We're going to have lots of significance. And people are going to have to come to us to make this happen. So his whole mindset is just backwards. He continues to show how the response to Jesus is not what he intended it to be. And so in verse 41, Jesus again responds to them in gentleness and again responds to them with another lesson on humility. In verse 41, he, verse 40, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, one thing I kind of want to add on for a second here, when we're reading through the Bible, context matters, right? When we first come to the Bible and we, we, we pick it up, we pick it up and we read, our first question should not be, what is this saying to me? That's not where we start with. The first question is, what was it saying to these people at this time in history? What is the underlying principle? And then take that principle and how does that apply to us today? That's the way the Bible is meant to be read. So when it talks about this, it says, whoever gives you a cup of water in my name will certainly not lose their reward. That does not mean that just because someone's nice to you, that, that they're a believer, that they have salvation. That's not what that's saying. In this moment, and what's coming in the next couple of chapters in the book of Mark, there is intense persecution. The disciples don't even have water. There are these moments where anybody that's going to give them water has a chance of punishment, has a chance to be thrown in jail. 
So even that slightest thing, in their humility, at that point, the disciples will become like the children. They will be needy. They will be lowly. And there will be someone that can, will just say, hey, here's a cup of water. That's an act of humility that Jesus is talking about that he gives to his people. So our context matters in this. And what Jesus is telling us is that everything we do in our lives is to point to him. The best way that we can bless children, that we can bless people who cannot repay us, is to show them that the all-sufficient centrality of Jesus in our life. Everything that centers around Jesus. And so what happens now is we have this information, right, about what Jesus is wanting us to do, about his definition of greatness and the type of humility that he wants us to lead. So what do we do with that? We basically fall into two camps here. There are those of us who, in our mind, we are striving for greatness. We have ambition. We want to go places. We want to do things. And again, Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with striving for greatness. But is your definition lined up with Jesus' definition of striving for greatness? Does that match what he's given us to do? Because if it doesn't, then everything that you have up there, everything that you think will give you that, is always going to let you down. Right? If you think, if I get this thing, then I'll be the greatest. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to get it. Because then you'll realize that it, it, it doesn't work. It'll work for a short period of time, but it'll always fade because none of those things were meant to carry that. None of those things were meant to carry that. Only Jesus was meant to carry that. Only Jesus was meant to be the one who with everything that he has to offer you, there's greatness in that because of his love for you, because of his humility, because we're following him. So if you're in that spot today where, where that is your mindset, make sure that your definitions lined up with Jesus. But there's another camp that a lot of us find ourselves in. And it's not the camp that's striving for greatness. It's the one that's needy and lowly. There are those of us who would say, if we're being honest, striving for greatness, I'm just trying to stay above water. I'm just trying to survive right now. Life is tough. Life is hard. I'm not really concerned about being great. I'm concerned about just making it to the next day. So what I want to say is that there's a, a movie out right now called The Greatest Showman. I don't know if you've seen it, but that, the soundtrack is amazing. So if you don't have the soundtrack, get it. My wife saw the movie and got it, and our kids love it and sing it all the time. But it's about uh, Barnum and Bailey when the circus was started and how there's this group of people who are considered outcasts and freaks among the rest of society. And so there's a song called This Is Me that's being sung in there. And so it's sung by one of these people. And so the first verse, I want you to listen to the words of the first verse. I made sure to write it down so I wouldn't mess up the words. It says, I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. There are a lot of us that are in that place today. And so the song goes on to talk about to be okay with who you are. You know what, this is who I am, I just need to kind of accept that. But Jesus goes so much further. 
Jesus knows your broken parts, and he wants that. He wants all of it. He wants to say to you, I, I know that. I see that. I know that you're broken. That's, what I've, that's why I'm here. That's why I stayed the course to my death, even though I knew it was going to be painful, because I know who you are, and I want you, and I love you. Jesus is inviting us to belong to him. In verse 41, when it talks about giving someone a cup of water, it doesn't say because you're great or because you're awesome. It says because you belong to the Messiah. Because you're a part of Jesus' family. And that's what we want. That's what we need. Because until we understand that we are broken, then there's nothing, then we will not think that we need to be rescued. And there's nothing more clear in life that we need to be rescued by Jesus. So now we're about to go into our, our time of communion. When we take communion, the Bible talks about Jesus sat at the table. This was hours before his death. Jesus sat at the table with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. When you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So when we take communion, that is what we're doing. We are remembering the sacrifice, the humility that Jesus showed by staying on the cross because of his love for us. There's nothing sweeter than that. There's nothing more wonderful than that, than taking that time to understand, God, thank you so much for everything that you've done for me. The fact that you know me, you know everything about me, all the junk, all the messed up things, and you love me, and you stayed on the cross. You didn't get down when you could have, but you stayed there and then rose again three days later. That's such beautiful news to hear. So when we do this, we're going to have two tables set up. As we do this, when you come forward, when you, when you take the bread, when you take the juice, think about Jesus' humility and about what he did for you and about his service for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, just so many times we just don't have the words for what to say, God, when life is tough, when we're struggling, even when we're striving for greatness and don't feel like we quite get there, um, Lord, I pray that you will help us redefine what that word means. Lord, and for those of us that aren't striving for greatness, but that are just struggling to keep our heads above water, struggling to survive, struggling to take care of our families, just thinking that um, life just doesn't, just doesn't work for us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to focus on you and the fact that you continued, that you kept on because of your great love for us, God, because of the things you've done for us, Lord. God, we thank you for who you are, and we love you for all that you do. In your son's name I pray, amen.